Rocking the Academy is a podcast that's changing the future of higher education. Your hosts, Mary Churchill and Rupika Rizm, bring you conversations with the very best truth tellers who are formulating a different vision of the university. Do they rock the boat? Yes. But in doing so, they rock the Academy. Rocking the Academy is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University Press, publisher of excellent books on higher education. On this episode of Rocking the Academy, we chat with Kathleen Fitzpatrick, Director of Digital Humanities and Professor of English at Michigan State University. She has previously served as the Associate Executive Director and Director of Scholarly Communication for the Modern Language Association. Fitzpatrick is the author of numerous books, including Planned Obsolescence, published by NYU Press in 2011, and the recently acclaimed Generous Thinking, A Radical Approach to Saving the University, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you so much, Kathleen, for joining us. And I'll go ahead and start with our first question, just really intriguing to me, because you've had this really interesting and multifaceted, multi-directional career. You've been a faculty member, you worked at MLA, you're now you're a faculty member again, and you're leading this amazing digital humanities initiative at Michigan State. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey? How did you get here? It's one of those stories that I, every time I tell it, it feels like I'm turning it into a narrative when it's all been a lot of accident and happenstance, right? Um, but looking back, the choices actually seem to make some sense, only in reverse, right? I, I did my doctorate at NYU, and as I was finishing up, I had been working in digital publishing in the sort of mid-90s and had this moment of recognizing that I could continue working in digital publishing if I wanted to do that or I could go on the market and see if I got lucky. And I got lucky. Right out of grad school, got the best job I could conceivably have imagined at Pomona College and thought, okay, well, here we go. I'm going to go be an English professor. This is what you do. And everything was lined up for me to follow a relatively traditional sort of English and media studies faculty member path. I, you know, had tenure. I had, there were, there were things happening around me, though, as all of this was going on. I had, at some point, as I was finishing up my first book, gotten really sort of frustrated with how slow publishing processes were and started a blog. And so it's, you know, 2002 and I'm mouthing off on the internet about things. And one of the things that I wound up mouthing off about was these slow publishing processes in yeah. ways that, you know, they really just weren't keeping up with how technology might allow us to communicate. Maybe we should start thinking about doing something different. And at some point I realized that that might be book number two, that I might want to pursue some of these questions and think about them. And it was as that book was going into press with NYU, I had you know, been through the open review process, I had done most of the revisions, the book's going into press. Basically, Rosemary Fayal at the MLA came to me and said, these are some really interesting ideas. What if we try to put them into practice? What does that look like? And I, I, I mean, it was a really interesting moment. Um, I had just gotten promoted to full. And so I sort of had this vision of my life back on campus, you know, a very well-heeled institution, really brilliant students, all of the resources available to me. I knew exactly what I would be doing for the next 25 years. Or there was this new path, right? Go work for the MLA and see if you can make some change and do something different. And I wound up going down that path. 
which was, was gratifying and exciting and different. So I spent six years at the MLA and I loved every minute of it. I worked with an amazing team and we got to do some really fun stuff. But I will tell you that association life is hard and administrative life as administrators know is hard. And I found myself at the end of that time just ready to take what I had learned at that national level field-wide view back onto a specific campus and say, let me just, just worry about the local for a little while and not worry about the entire profession. You know, one thing led to another. I came back to MSU and have just been delighted to be here. I went to a large state land-grant institution as an undergrad. I went to mm -hmm. Louisiana State. And nice. so it's felt like coming home to come to a campus like this where I feel like I know these students and where they come from. And I know, you know, how they fit differently into the landscape of higher education today than do Pomona College students. So it's been great. And I have been extraordinarily privileged and really lucky to get to have taken that journey. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so we want to talk about your book because we've both read it, loved it. We found it fascinating. So what kinds of responses have you seen and how has the book resonated with people in higher ed? The book has struck a nerve in a lot of places. I've been invited to a lot of campuses over the course of this last year, particularly campuses that are finishing up a strategic planning process or that are about to embark on one and that are really thinking about these questions of the relationship between how they envision the structure of the university changing in the coming years and those core values and missions that they want to return to in some sense. I've gotten to have really extraordinary conversations with a bunch of different kinds of institutions and have found myself being pressed in some interesting directions. I've had campuses that are like all state institutions under various kinds of budgetary pressure say, well, this is all well and good if you're Pomona College, right? You can afford to be generous. You know, how, how do you continue being generous when budgetary screws tight? How, how do you think generously at a moment when you're having to cut programs? And these are, these are huge questions. And are those coming from faculty or administrators or both? Both. Okay. Both, I think. I, I have, you know, I've had really positive conversations with faculty who feel like they have a sense from the book of the possibilities for the work that they want to do and how it might contribute something to a more, a more, a richer, more open public sphere for the kinds of work that, that they are ordinarily engaged in amongst themselves, right? So that's been really great. Where they see obstacles in the kinds of things that I've written has been in the, yes, but my dean slash provost slash president will never allow us to do that, right? It will never count because. And then, you know, similarly, many of the administrators that I've talked to see the, the goals that they have for the institutions and the ways that, in fact, they really do want to see faculty doing the kinds of things that the faculty members have been talking about, but are running into things like entrenched departmental cultures and challenges getting those cultures to open up and shift around and so forth. Everybody feels like there are obstacles 
but the locus of those obstacles is in different places for different stakeholders. It sounds like they feel like it's something you would add on rather than rethink as a whole. Yeah, I think that's a fair, a fair characterization. Like, and now there is the generous thinking box that we check on our RPT form. Exactly. exactly. I thought generously this year. (laughs) Here's that column. Here's that protocol. Right. 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 Rather than, as I think a number of institutions are starting to do, really recognizing that if what you want from your faculty's engagement with ideas and scholarship is a public impact for that work, you have to assess that work differently. Right. You really have to think about the public engagement first and not as a separate sort of outreach category. Exactly. So I thought it's been exciting to see the hashtag generous thinking that people have been sharing their thoughts or what they did and how they've been implementing generous thinking into their own lives, into their own work lives and and even their, their personal lives. And that leads into to my next question, which is how can faculty and administrators implement generous thinking in their working lives. In particular, this is something I talked to Nikki Agate about mm-hmm. in Qmetrics, the initiative, which actually uh, Chris Long at, at Michigan yeah, really yeah. involved with that, right? My dean, so, absolutely. Yeah, and so it's all about how do we rethink the prestige economies of mm-hmm. academia and how do we rethink what we actually value, right? Yes. And the ways that those values like openness, for example, would be, could be incorporated into, into assessment. Yeah. And this, what I was saying to Nikki was that these are, who's not going to say these are great things, right? Who is not, who's going to disagree? At the same time, I'm curious about this tension of of implementing generous thinking while also dealing with the structural barriers of the academy, right? Particularly Mm -hmm. around race, particularly around Mm -hmm. gender. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think these are exactly the crucial questions, right? One of the things that I've been most heartened by in the ways that the hashtag has gotten picked up on Twitter um, and the ways that Hannah Alpert Adams and her um, colleagues that she's been using it very actively with have been focused is that their approach to what they think of as generous thinking is very focused on creating equity and expanding opportunity for others within the academy right? How can I create more conditions of possibility for more people to participate in the kinds of conversations that we're we're wanting to have? And there are elements of self-care in it, and there are elements of thinking about the impact of one's own work, but it's really that mode of of expanding opportunity that I think is, is crucial. Because I do believe that there are already enormous calls to generosity within the academy everywhere we turn. But those calls to generosity fall disproportionately on some shoulders more than others. And really figuring out how those of us who are in incredibly protected, privileged positions within the academy, I am a full professor, I have tenure, I have an administrative increment to my salary because I'm directing digital humanities. I've got a budget at my disposal. I've got all of these possibilities. And if I'm not using them to help support folks who do not have those possibilities available to them, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? 
I am the subject of my own call to generosity, right? I'm the one in more than anything that I'm really imploring to say, are you doing this for the right people and for the right reasons? This is one of the things that I most admire, I think, about the Humetrics project, is that it's not a matter of saying to faculty members, to departments, to deans, to RPT committees, that you should be thinking about other kinds of values first in assessing the careers of these faculty. It's instead saying these are the values that we are all attempting to implement all the time and remembering that those values like equity, like openness, like collegiality, community, all of the different things that Humetrics is exploring, that these values underwrite everything we do. That as much as we talk up openness, for instance, but then end up publishing in ways that privilege quality. And the recognition of Humetrics that there is no quality without equality is, I think, a crucial part of their project. And it's, I hope, a crucial part of generous thinking too. Recognizing that those of us who have the ability to be generous should feel it as a call. Well, that actually leads very nicely into our final question is, what gives you hope for the future of higher ed? I mean, honestly, one of the things that most gives me hope right now is the number of campuses that have asked me to come talk about the book, that having heard the talk about the book say, okay, this is great. How do we do it? That they, they really want to know how they can better align, for instance, their internal reward structures with the values and goals that they have for the institution more broadly. How they can break out of the, we've always done it this way, of traditional metrics and find a better path thinking about kinds of things that we should actually value in the academy. And that gives me hope. That is not to equate hope with a, a smooth or easy path, but I think that the desire of people to do something better is going to push us in the right direction. Rocking the Academy is sponsored by Johns Hopkins University Press, publisher of Academia Next, the Futures of Higher Education by Brian Alexander, available where books are sold.